You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by ecologist and evolutionary biologist June Ng Lim from the Department of Integrated Biology here at Berkeley. Welcome, June. Hi there. How are you doing today? Good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. So, okay, so you're an ecologist and an evolutionary biologist. Are those two different things? No. In fact, a lot of um, a lot of evolution actually depends a lot on the ecology of individual species. And how a species interacts with the world is also uh, strongly tied to its ecology. So while there is this dichotomy between ecology and evolution, they really are two different sides of the same coin. Okay, so you get to be both at the same time. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah, and you work uh, in Hawaii, right? Yeah. That's pretty fun, right? Pretty fun. Pretty fun. <laughs> it seems pretty. I wish I was in Hawaii right now. So, uh, you know, but are you? do you have any plans uh, to head back over there soon for research? Yeah, I'm actually um, heading back out there uh, next week to collect more of my specimens. Okay. And what kind of specimens do you collect generally? So I, I study oceanic plants. Um, I study a group of um, endemic Hawaiian plants called the peperomia. Sounds like pepperoni, but people make that mistake um they're actually closely related to the black peppers that you that you uh grind onto your evening meals um Mm. on hawaii there's 24 different species of peperomia um 22 of them are only found on hawaii and nowhere else in the world and i'm doing a molecular study to see uh where the hawaiian peperomia came from when they arrived on hawaii and how they have diversified across the archipelago. So you said they're found only in Hawaii, but they didn't necessarily evolve in Hawaii? No. So Hawaii is actually a hotspot archipelago. So it's formed when you have thick plumes of magma coming from the Earth's uh, mantle, and that basically creates these volcanic islands that in the middle of the ocean. And as the plate moves across this plume, it creates islands in sequence. And so all of Hawaii's biota, so its its animals, its plants, its marine diversity, had to have gotten there through a long-distance dispersal. So Hawaii is about 4,000 kilometers from the nearest continent, so everything basically had to fly, swim, or get blown there. Wow. And do you know uh, when the most recent island formed? Uh, the most recent island, uh, which we call the Big Island, was formed about a million years ago. Some of the youngest lavas on Big Island date back to 600. No, actually date back to about 50 years, 40 years. So it's still a very volcanically active island. And there is a, actually a, a submarine volcano just southeast of Big Island that is just ready to breach in um, the next hundred thousands of years. So there will be a new island that we can like send tourists to soon. That's what you're saying. A hundred thousand years. Pretty soon. Pretty soon. Pretty soon. So then some of the plants and animals must have gotten there before humans got there. If it, the most recent island was a million years ago, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm assuming humans got there much more recently. Mm-hmm. So then if humans are not carrying them across the ocean, how are plants getting across the ocean? Um, one of the one of the main hypotheses, and it seems pretty, there is a lot of evidence for that, is through migratory birds. So some of these seeds, they often have certain mechanisms that allow them to stick onto the feathers of birds, 
And as the birds migrate across the globe, they end up dispersing those seeds. Some of them probably arrive from much more different mechanisms, like, for example, storms or even jet streams higher up in the atmosphere, um, and sometimes even through rafting. So when a piece of vegetation gets dislodged from continental areas and just gets driven by um, oceanic currents towards the island. And these different mechanisms work more predominantly for different groups of plants and animals. So for some of the more wet, fleshy fruits that some plants actually produce, um, they are more transported in the gut of birds. For more wind-dispersed seeds, they probably got there through storms or through circulation patterns, like wind circulation patterns. So, you know, there's a great variety of how different things have gotten there. So you mentioned earlier that you study how plants have diversified Mm -hmm. since they've gotten there. So what do you mean by diversification? What is that? Diversification is basically the process in which species accumulate. It's quantified as the rate at which species are come into existence through various um, speciation uh, mechanisms and the rate at which species go extinct. So it's, it's, it's basically a net rate of how quickly species accumulate on the island. And usually that clock starts when the island is formed. And so that's how we study diversification. So it doesn't, ne- so it's the rate of accumulation of species, but that doesn't necessarily mean there has to be a lot of um, morphological differences, right? So it's not just necessarily how different everything looks, but how many species there are. And those are two different things, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, so some of the some of the plant species that I look at, they are almost morphologically indistinguishable, but genetically they would be quite distinct. And do you do a lot of genetic work in your own research? Um, yeah, I, I sequence little parts of a plant genome and then look at using that to infer the evolutionary relationships of different species on the island. I also have a more comparative approach where I have different phylogenies. So these are called phylogenies, which are basically um, an inference for how these different species are related to each other. And using these inferences, we can fit sophisticated models of how um, these species might have dispersed through time when they first got to the islands, and also how different morphological traits have evolved. So I guess I should go back to the beginning. Have you always been interested in plants? Is that always been your primary focus? That's funny, but um, the answer is no. So I did my degree at um, Imperial College London, and I actually have a degree in zoology. Which Which is is not plants. Which is not plants, right? Uh, (laughs) The funny thing is, the reason why I was interested in science was really, I call myself part of the Attenborough generation. So grew grew up seeing all these wonderful uh, wildlife documentaries made by the BBC over the past few decades. And so I thought, you know, I really wanted to study animals. But when I was doing my undergraduate, I was exposed to a much wider variety of different fields in ecology and evolution. And one of the things that really captured my attention at first was this concept of community assembly. The idea that the ecological communities that we see today are not random associations of different species, that there is some rhyme and some reason and some processes that actually drive their coexistence in space and time. And so that was how I really moved from an organismal perspective to a more wider um, community level perspective. 
over time, I realized that communities are not isolated entities. You know, the, the species that interact in one particular space in time actually interact over much larger regional scales. You know, one, one may think, you know, a species might actually be in one particular place in one particular year, but if the weather is slightly different or the climate slightly different, it might be found in a different area. And so to understand how these species interact with each other, you have to understand how those processes operate over much larger scales. And so that's how I kind of got involved in plants, um, because some of the best some of the best research in studying how different species coexist happen to be in the plant literature because they have been so well characterized, especially in the UK. So that's how I originally got into it. But over time, I guess I was a little less satisfied with the way that I was thinking about these processes that islands started to become a more attractive system to actually test some of the ideas of how species actually come together. Um, over time, because islands are discrete entities, so they they are basically a bit of land surrounded by ocean. They change predictably through time. So oceanic islands such as Hawaii, they have a growth phase, and then eventually they erode, and then they erode back into the ocean eventually, given you know a few more millions of years. So you can see how easily the landscape changes through time, and that has a a substantial impact on ecological processes that operate on those islands. Um, so by actually comparing how these processes operate across the Hawaiian archipelago, you can make some predictions as to how these processes should change through time. And is what happens on the Hawaiian archipelago applicable to other islands and other places? Oh yeah. So the cool thing about islands is that there are many islands around the world and they all have their own idiosyncrasies, like how they were formed, how old they are, how tall they have been, which continents they have been close to, which will affect potential sources of colonists. So they vary in every way imaginable. And rather than despair that there is so much complexity, we can actually use that variation in different islands to, to hopefully get more general picture of how um, evolution and ecology operates. So it is it a coincidence that the UK is an island and that's where you studied and now you continue to work on islands? <laughs> I think that's a total coincidence. Um, the UK um, is very interesting floristically, but over the last 20,000 years, um, I think the UK used to be connected to the rest of Europe. But during the glaciations, a lot of the plant diversity has been erased by that um, by glaciation. So I would say that the UK is relatively more depauperate than most of continental Europe. Um, but it's a very different type of island because the species were there to begin with, and then they have reinvaded from a much less geographically distant source. Um, whereas for islands, you know, they tend to be more idiosyncratic in the types of lineages of plant and animal lineages that actually make it there. Sherwin Kalquis, the famous natural historian of islands, he coined the term disharmony, which is basically a way of saying that the biota on islands tends not to be a perfect proportional subset of its nearest continent. It tends to be formed of elements from all around the Pacific. So for, for example, for Hawaii, there are plant groups that have immigrated, we think, from as far as Africa and even Arctic and boreal regions of temperate North America. For my group, for the Peperomia, we hypothesize that they must have come from somewhere in the Neotropics, 
even though we don't know that yet, um, we will soon. So that makes things really exciting because then you can start looking at you know the 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 role of chance, probability that a particular plot lineage actually gets to the island, but also look at the role of determinism. So how predictable are these patterns given that we are just sampling randomly from all these different continents to build a biota on Hawaii? If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KLX here in Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. This is The Graduates. Today, I'm joined by Juning Lim from the Department of Integrated Biology. And uh, he's been telling us about his work uh, with plants in Hawaii, the the non-pepperoni group, right? Pepperonium. Is that, <laughs> am I close? Pepperomia. Pepperomia. Um, but you did say it is related to pepper, huh? But yeah. is it actually related? It, But it is not one of the types of plants that they make pepper out of, or is it? That would be a separate genus okay. called Piper. Piper. That was it's so confusing. Why did they call this one the pepper one then? Pepperomi. Pepper. I, I, you know, I don't know the <laughs> etymology of, of, of the genus, but maybe that's something I should actually look into. No, you can't know everything. It's okay, June. <laughs> uh, so you were in the UK, and that's when you really first started to get interested in plants and community assemblages and islands and stuff. Mm-hmm. How, how did you end up here at Berkeley? So it turns out that when I was applying for my graduate school, I really didn't have a good idea of where to look. I was still thinking about speciation and extinction on, and how that plays a role in community assembly across the landscape. But because it was such a broad topic, I basically had no clue and no idea where to start. But then a friend actually saw an ad for a PhD studentship with um, Rosemary Gillespie here at Berkeley looking at community assembly approaches on Hawaii. And that's how I kind of got sucked into this Hawaii as a system. So Professor Gillespie has this immense multi-institutional project undergoing, which of which I'm a part of, to look at how arthropod communities structure differently across the Hawaiian archipelago. So this has involved many field seasons of going out into the field, setting up insect traps, leaving them out for a week. And right now we're still in the process of actually identifying the things that we have found. But the idea is that by sampling communities on different landscapes of different ages, um, that by looking at particular properties of those communities, like for example, how rich are those communities? Are they dominated by a a certain few number of species or are they more evenly or is abundance more evenly distributed across species? We can get a handle of how ecological processes shape these community level patterns and hopefully infer that back to what, how those processes might have um, influenced community assembly throughout the Hawaiian archipelago. The neat thing is is that the Hawaiian archipelago, because it has been formed in sequence, so I mentioned that the big islands are one million years old, but if you move further northwest, the old island of Kauai, that's almost five million years old. And so the landscape has had a much longer period of time for ecological and evolutionary processes to operate. And so by comparing communities from older islands to younger islands, we get a sense of... Um, how those processes would affect some measure or some metric of the ecosystem that we are looking at. And are the islands pretty similar in terms of like their topography or just generally the types of ecosystems you might find? Yes and no. So part of this project 
kind of assumes that Kauai is like a six million year old version of Big Island, but really uh, there are idiosyncrasies between the different islands. For example, Kauai, even at its maximum elevation, was never as high as Hawaii is today. Maui, um, d- during periods of low sea level, was actually connected to all the neighboring islands of Molokai, Lanai, Kaho'olawe, uh, Molokini. There are a few more tiny little islets. And that complex was way larger than Kauai is today. But obviously, because Maui was more dominated by lowlands, and when the sea level rose, a lot of that landmass was actually is now actually submerged. So all the islands have very different geologic trajectories, even though there is a general pattern of growth followed by um, subsidence and erosion of the islands. So, and another thing that's different is also soil development. People don't really think about soils have uh, as something that has to be developed because you know we see it all around us. But remember that Hawaii is formed from lava, and so there has to be a certain amount of chemical weathering that has to take place before sufficient soil is developed that is amenable to different types of plants. And so on Kauai, the soils are very well developed, and in fact, over the course of six million years or five million years, has started to lose some of its, some of its nutrients. Uh, whereas on Big Island, some of its nutrients are still locked in the lava and are not um, accessible to many of the plants, um, on, or particularly on the younger lava flows. And so we also see this transition in ecosystem um, characteristics along that chrono sequence. So I think most of us wish we were in Hawaii right now, quite possibly. <laughs> Can you give us a sense of what it's like working there in terms of what a typical day is like for you in Hawaii? Um, it's beaches and cocktails, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got to sample some of the biodiversity on the beaches and, <laughs> and maybe while snorkeling. Reality isn't like that. Reality of fieldwork isn't like that. We usually get up at, you know, 5 a.m. in the morning, pack everything into a four-wheel drive, and then hopefully get to the field site right before sunrise and then work as as much as possible till mid-noon. That was for my community sampling for arthropods. For the plants, you know, they're not going to run away. So, you know, it's it's a bit more relaxed and I guess a little bit more fun because you can kind of like see the sights a little bit more. Hawaiian forests are really interesting. They are unlike any tropical forest that you've ever seen. Um, when you go into a tropical forest, you hear lots of sounds, a lot of insects. The canopy is made up of bazillion different types of species. But when you go to Hawaii, you really only have one iconic um, species of tree. Um, known as Metrosideros polymorpha, and polymorpha meaning that it has many different morphotypes, and um, it's it's quite ecologically varied across the Hawaiian archipelago, and so it's a very much more species poor forest with pretty much a monospecific canopy. So the canopy is only made up of one species, with a strange subcanopy of tree ferns, and a much more rich understory. So it's it's pretty weird if you have been to um, the tropical forests in, say, uh, Central America or if you have had any hikes in, you know, Southeast Asia. So and is that because it's harder for trees to get to Hawaii or why is there only one kind of tree? Part of it is the isolation. So very few trees. Uh, Metrosideros is one of them, but not the only one. But definitely for wet to music forests, it's definitely the dominant. Um, and we think it's mostly the isolation. Um, 4,000 miles, uh, 4,000 kilometers is pretty hard to yeah. traverse. And Metrosideros is quite a quite a good disperser. Its seeds are wind dispersed. 
yeah, but we're still trying to figure out the genetics of 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 that tree on on Hawaii. So you collect samples um, and you bring them back here for mm-hmm. genetic analysis, and you also run a lot of computer modeling, right? Mm-hmm. So you you've got your hand in pretty much every part of the pie, <laughs> so to speak, in that you're working at it from you know from end to end. Yeah. So um, uh, me and my advisor have actually developed a model that takes into account the geologic histories of different islands. Trying to generalize their trajectory through time, so their growth phase as they grow and build lava and grow in height and in habitat complexity, and through their inevitable demise into a coral atoll a few million years later. So we have been trying to characterize that geologic dynamic with the diversification dynamics of different plants and animal clays. And what we find was that if you include that geology, you actually predict patterns of species diversity on the on the archipelago better than models that do not take into account that geologic history. Uh, so number one, this suggests that the biota of Hawaii is intricately tied to the geology, the landscape. Another th- interesting thing we find is that for many groups, they speciate really quickly the moment they get there. And if our model is to be believed, which I think it should be believed, <laughs> they start to decline about about around about 2 million years. So for 15 of these plant and animal clades that we looked at, about 8 of them have shown negative diversification rates or negative species accumulation rates, even on islands as young as Maui Nui, as Maui, 2 million mm-hmm. years. So which suggests that you know, a lot of these species, even though they look like they're happily trudging along on the Hawaiian archipelago, a lot of these lineages are starting to lose species. But this is obviously at timescales that are imperceptible to us. So I combine a lot of these sorts of um, mechanistic models with more statistical models to understand why different species show different types of diversification dynamics on the island and also try to tease apart how they're different and whether there are any factors that drive a slowly radiating lineage versus a, a rapidly diversifying radiation. So do you have any spoilers on on why they might diversify at different rates? Or is that still work to work to come? It's work to come. Um, I have some ideas as to how that might be. It's, it's kind of related to dispersal. Um, one thing that you note for plants on Hawaii is that the lineages that disperse everywhere tend to be particularly species poor, possibly because they disperse everywhere and that prevents any particular population from being genetically distinct enough to become a new species. The species that disperse very poorly end up being very species poor as well because they end up not getting anywhere. They only stick in one spot. Whereas lineages with intermediate levels of dispersal tend to do tend to be the most species-rich clades on Hawaii. Um, Peperomia is one of them. But interesting thing about Peperomia is that because they're so morphologically diverse, it has been hypothesized that they might have colonized the Hawaiian archipelago more than once. So the species that we see on Hawaii might actually have three or four separate histories. Is there, is there any way to tell that from DNA analysis? Yeah, but the only way to really do a good test of that is to collect enough peperomia from across the Pacific because, you know, one particular group of peperomia might have been derived from a completely different origin, say, you know, Central America, whereas another group could have been from a more Pacific species. So the diversity of different biogeographic sources of different plant lineages on Hawaii is further compounded that I actually have that complexity within my group 
Nice. So I think it's going to be pretty exciting when、um, all the results are in. Yeah, so it seems like there's a lot of different directions you could go with your research.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're actually、uh, coming up pretty quickly on the end of time. So I definitely want to ask you now and let you get into the soapbox stage here. If, if there's anything that you would like to say to the public, please,、uh, please regale us. So I think one of the things that really strike me about plants on oceanic islands is that a lot of them are unique. They, they, you will never find them anywhere else in the world. Out of the fourteen hundred、uh, vascular plant species on Hawaii, ninety percent of them are found nowhere else on Earth. There are estimated seventy thousand endemic plant species found on islands alone in the world. That's a quarter of all vascular plant species in the world. So here you have a quarter of the world's plant species found on only five percent of the world's land surface. But because of human land use change and Uh, climate change and invasive species, up to fifty percent of them are under threat. In Hawaii, the number is lower, about thirty-three、um, to forty percent.、Um, but you know, these are these are endemic species that have evolved in isolation for millions and millions of years. We see plant species on these islands that are so unique that you can't. Sometimes you can't even find an analog in continental areas. Um, in terms of their morphology, their fruiting type,、uh, just their overall growth form. So, in some sense, these islands are harbor to almost like alien type ecosystems, and I think that they are definitely worth conserving. If you are listening from an island right now, you should get in touch with your local conservation groups,、um, figure out how you can save your own native habitats. Hawaii has a very long、uh, history of actually trying to conserve some of its of its land after. Decades of agricultural extensification and intensification, but I remain hopeful that people connect to plants in this deeper way. And you know, like I grew up, so I grew up on Singapore, right, which is ninety percent, or I think even higher than that, deforested, right. And so, actually, getting in touch with or, or getting a cultural connection with the plants that I found on the island was not necessarily hard, but You had to actively seek it out. It wasn't something that was all-encompassing and part of my being.、Um, I was I was an environmentalist when I was in Singapore, and so getting in, connected to the native her- the natural heritage of the island was was fairly straightforward. But I can imagine there are many regions in the world, many islands in the world, that where the inhabitants may not have that same connection for the same reason because it's already. Been destroyed or deforested or cleared,、um, very few pockets remain, and very few people actually seek it out. So, besides just conserving it, I would say you know, go out and explore your own natural heritage.、Um, that's you know, this is really all we have. And when we lose them, there is you know, apart from freak evolutionary events where the same plant evolves from a colonist a few thousand kilometers away. These plants will—you'll never see them again. And so, when you say threat, I mean we talked about how the islands will eventually erode away. But when you say they're under threat, does that mean like in our lifetime? Yes. So these are threats that are imposed by just purely the scale of the human enterprise, our cities, the need to feed those cities. But you know, these natural ecosystems still play a very important role in、um, human well-being. Watersheds are.、Uh, A very good example of that, you know, stuff to do with、uh, controlling erosion or 
pollination services. So there are all these intangible and in some way incalculable uh, services that natural ecosystems provide that we should definitely think about a lot more when we are considering issues of how best to feed future generations to come. And so you mentioned people who live on islands, what they could do. But mm -hmm. do you have any suggestions for people in the Bay Area here who might be interested in environmentalism or conservation? Is there anything they can do to help the islands? <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that you could help is um, to be a little bit more aware of issues like invasive species. They are a really big threat on islands because islands are so insular. You know, these, these plant species have nowhere to go. And so if they get crowded out by, say, an invasive species that you brought from California or from someplace else in the world, they could very easily just get a foothold on Hawaii and start trashing the native ecosystems. I think one of the saddest things when I was scouting for potential field sites on Hawaii was to see really, really beautiful Metrosideros canopy and then hike, you know, through mud and through rain to get there just to see an ocean of invasive ginger. It's, it's the saddest thing, you know. Hawaii's ecosystems are so unique. I mentioned this beautiful subcanopy of tree ferns. When you get there, it's just when you get to highly invaded ecosystems, you just see blankets of invasive gingers from Tibet. Some places you find invasive guavas. They form like these very, very dense thickets where no native plants can grow. And it's it's kind of scary, but a lot of people don't actually realize that they're not meant to be there. So, you know, just being aware of, of these things and also whenever there are measures in place at all these different ports of entry regarding the, you know, the movement of, uh, say, you know, fresh plant material, fruits, and so on and so forth, I think everyone should be more aware of why those um, things exist and obviously heed them. So you mean like when you fly to Hawaii and they make sure that you didn't bring any like fresh fruits or plants or anything with you? This is what you're talking about, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, uh, very good words of advice. Any last words before we end our time here? The next time you go to Hawaii, I think you should go check out some of the more native type forests and you will see how unique that place really is. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, June. Uh, so you've been listening to The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. Today I've been joined by Juning Lim from the Department of Integrative Biology here at Berkeley. He's an ecologist and evolutionary biologist, and he's been telling us about his work in uh, plant biology and diversification and speciation in the Hawaiian archipelago and uh, also... Some some work with arthropods, so that's mostly spiders, right? And catching spiders. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just generally giving us great advice about, you know, conservation and how to really appreciate natural and native forests, not just in Hawaii, but on other islands. And even here in California, of course, we have some great uh, natural forests here. And, yeah, just being more aware and being appreciative of the things that we have. So thank you again, June, and we'll be back in another couple weeks with another episode of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX, Berkeley.